Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Showtime. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That'd be me. Really going to have fun today. That I promise. Uh, Dr. Craig Keener is my guest. He's a professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. And he's written many books, and most of them have won big national awards, and he's sold a ton, a ton of books. And I also am joined in studio by Dr. Jim Bilby and Dr. Peter Kapsner, uh, two uh, colleagues who are just uh, wonderful friends and great to have around. And uh, Craig is so stinking smart that if you leave it up to me to ask the questions, it could be a boring hour. So I pleaded with Jim and Peter to come in and help me ask better questions. And I was talking uh, to Jim about Craig, and he said, well, he's he's kind of not only this brilliant theologian, but he's kind of like Jesus with a Ph.D. That was the introduction, and I think I'm going to stick with that one. Craig, welcome to the show. Um, th- thank you. I, I want to be more like Jesus, but uh, I still have a good bit of way to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're so glad that you can join us today. And when I my first introduction to you, if I'll be honest, is... I was saying to Jim Bilby, I said, so Jim, when you come across a passage in Scripture and you want to kind of dig deeper, I said, what resource do you use? And, and then you mentioned uh, one of your books. So I ran out and bought it that day. I never buy, <laughs> Craig, I never buy books. I'm in radio. People send me books all day long. <laughs> I got a stack of books every week. So, Well, thank, thank you, Jim, for recommending the book. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're, you know, of course, we're talking about the background Bible commentary. Uh, Craig, I, it's the one book when, when people ask me, how do, we, how do we try to get, you know, past the surfacey readings of Scripture? It's the one book I, I push people to because it, I, I tell people, it doesn't tell you how to read a passage. It tells you what was in the mind of the the author and the reader when it was being written. And so it kind of enables you to do a better job of reading for yourself. So thank you for that service. I think it's really, it's just great. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really a blessing uh, to be able to work on that. And the the fruit of many years of, of work that I wasn't really initially expecting to be a book, I was just trying to understand the Bible better, but uh, yeah, it developed over time. You know, Craig, uh, and this is Peter now, that uh, you, you talk about understanding the Bible better. I think a lot of the listeners can sympathize with that, because I think when you just break open the biblical text and read it in the English language, it it really does still have meaning, and, and you can you can sense sort of a depth of inspiration there, and, and it kind of cuts across even somebody's intellectual ability to understand it. And yet, to Jim's point, there is sort of this need to be able to get back into the minds of the authors, to be able to sort of crawl back into life 2,000 years ago, to try to best understand the context of the scriptures and maybe what they were teaching in that time, because it wasn't being taught in 21st century America or in 21st century China or Russia or anywhere that we have today. It, w- it was being taught in a certain kind of context. So I'm cur- just curious for the listeners, how do you even go about doing your research? Where do you start on something like that to get behind the scenes in the scriptures? Well, once I realized how much I needed it, because I was I was reading so much of the Bible, like 40 chapters of the Bible a day, 
and I finally realized, whoa, you know, they're, they're taking for granted things the audience knew, the author knew, the, the author knew the audience situation, but we don't know that stuff. And so they didn't have to explain it to them. I always get frustrated with 2 Thessalonians 2.5, where Paul says, and and you know what we're talking about because uh, we, we told you about it when we were there. And I'm like, Paul! <laughs> <laughs> so, I, um, what what I started doing, I, I read like um, a book on Judaism, ancient Judaism, and I I then I read another book on ancient Judaism, and I found that they didn't agree on everything. And so I ended up having to begin plowing through the, the primary sources, reading the ancient sources, um, ancient Jewish sources, and then Greek and Roman sources. I'd read some of the Greek and Roman sources before I became a Christian, not knowing I'd ever be using them like this, obviously, but... Um, but yeah, and I, and I took the information down back then on index cards. Uh, this was pre-computer, if you can, if anybody can remember that far back. <laughs> yeah, just it grew after about a hundred thousand index cards. By then, I had I had a computer and was starting to just type directly into my database. Wow. All right, Craig, I would love to talk about uh, one of your books because I personally have not written any. So. Um... Probably better we focus on you and your work. This book that you wrote about miracles, it's a two-volume, um, The Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. Uh, really, th- would you consider this light reading? Uh, some parts of it. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, if you would, just share with our listeners uh, the, or- the origin of this book. Well, <clears throat> I was working on my four-volume Acts commentary, and there, you know, a lot of when you're dealing with historical issues, a lot of skeptical scholars will say, well, we know this part couldn't really have happened because those things don't happen, and you never have eyewitnesses who think they happened or or claim that they saw these things happen. So this must be much later material. And I'm like, well, I've seen some stuff, and I have friends who've seen stuff like this. Let me me just go and find some stuff for a footnote. there's surely there's some work that catalogs uh, a number of these examples, maybe in missiological literature or something like that. And what I found was, um, well, initially, initially I didn't find those. And so initially, you know, I just start adding different accounts from different sources rather than one that catalogs a lot of them. And the footnote grew and grew until, you know, it was too long for a footnote and too long for a chapter, and it was going to be a 200-page book, but it ended up at 1,100 pages because it was taking a while to come out, and I kept finding more and more stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there, there are just a lot of examples of, of things God is doing all around the world. So I, that book is, I think, it's so one of the things it's that uh, when I when I uh, open up one of your books, uh, I prepare myself for first, almost an encyclopedic sort of quality <laughs> to the book. I also am so uh, impressed by the um, engagement that you do with the original sources, right? And so the the Greek and the Roman sources. And, and so the, the thing that I, I always wonder for so many of our churches, we have sort of a built-in resistance to reading these sources. Because, well, let's be honest, this it, the, these sources aren't Scripture, right? So as believers in sola scriptura, we just like, well, we just read the Bible. But 
you, it, I think, show in so many different ways how those uh, Greek and Roman sources are so helpful for us to actually read the scripture. Um, so could you, I wonder if you'd give us uh, a couple of examples where, you know, in scripture where we just miss what's going on in the miraculous nature of a passage um, because we're reading it from, you know, kind of our post-enlightenment, you know, American individualistic eyes. So I, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, some examples come to mind there? Sure. Um, I mean, in, in terms of just background in general, you've got the six water pots set aside for the ceremony of purification in John chapter 2 and verse 6. And uh, it says they're stone water pots. Well, the reason that they were stone, stone water pots were used because they wouldn't contract ritual impurity the way some other some other kinds of pots would. And so um, excavations show that they were widely used. Of course, Jesus turning the water into wine, um, you know, there are some mythical examples of something like that, but we don't really have any uh, any other person other than Jesus back then actually turning water into wine. Um, we do have some examples today of, of reports of this in Indonesia and so on, and some eyewitnesses whose minds were blown when they saw it happen. But, um, but in terms of uh, the miracle accounts in general, yeah, sometimes I think we approach them the wrong way because, you know, we have this legacy in the Western world from David Hume. And David Hume said, you know, you don't have credible witnesses for miracles. And so, you know, we, we shouldn't trust these, these claims. And so we have kind of a built-in skepticism, especially in, in academia, which helps prevent us from being gullible. But it also, it also kind of renders us impervious to what we're supposed to do with the Bible, which is just trust it. So, um, you know, if you went to, say, a, a healing sanctuary of the Greek god Asclepius, there would often be testimonies posted on the wall, uh, plaques of, of different kinds of healings and so on. And the purpose of these testimonies was to encourage people to believe that Asclepius could heal them. And and yet when we come to the, uh, the miracles in the Gospels, we often approach them in a, in a very different way, we, we say, okay, well, that's interesting that happened back then. Or we say, uh, you know, if we're coming from a more skeptical perspective, um, scholars will say, well, that, that couldn't have happened. But the, the, the biblical writers, and of course, this is uh, from the Old Testament up through the New Testament, I think they reported these to, to remind us that we have a living God who really does act in the world and we can put our trust in him. So, Craig, would it be fair to say that if I would be skeptical in the 21st century, that if I was walking around in the first century, it would be exactly the opposite, that it would be unusual to be skeptical about miraculous kinds of things? Yes. Yeah, most people in the first... I mean, there were some people... Um, obviously, there were people who were very aware of the ancient myths and things like that, um, that, that, that those were not very historically well-founded. But even the majority of them still believed that deities acted in their own time in various ways. Not, not all of them, but most of them believed that. Um, and certainly Jewish people who believed in the one true God believed that 
God continued to act in their own time. Some of them didn't believe he acted in the same way that he acted in earlier biblical times. But, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's definitely a, a difference. So, Craig, I wonder if you could help me with this, because sometimes my students push back uh, when I'm talking about the miraculous, and they're saying, but all these people are claiming to do miracles. And, you know, this pastor told me the other day that, you know, if I would send him $20, that he would do a, a miracle and my acne would be cleared up or something like that. And and so there's so many of these claims that are out there that kind of create uh, a skepticism, almost, I would say, a justified skepticism. How do we find a balance between the justified skepticism to kind of the quackery of some you know, Christian televangelist claims, but also resist this sort of skepticism that the Enlightenment would have us shut out anything miraculous. How do how do we find the balance there? Um, now, I can answer that in terms of historiographic research, or I can answer it theologically, or I can answer it both. But um, theologically, I mean, uh, the, the the miracles Jesus did, he actually kind of shushed people. You know, he said, "Don't." He was not in it for self-promotion. He was doing it out of compassion. Um, you know, the the uh, the lack of self-promotion fits with the mystery of the kingdom, and mm. and uh, you know, not he he wasn't going around boasting about himself. But at the same time, the signs were to sometimes in a subtle way, sometimes in a more direct way, to draw attention to who he who he really is. Uh, and to draw attention to the nature of the of God's kingdom, that uh, God God cared for the the weak and the lowly and the broken, and He was acting on their behalf. So we have we have those indications theologically. If somebody is using it to draw attention to themselves and to puff themselves up, then well, it's the same with the gift of teaching. I mean, <laughs> with any of our yeah. gifts, if we're using them to promote ourselves rather than the Lord, we're doing the wrong thing. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, Peter says, why do you look at us as if it's by our own power or holiness that this man stands before you whole? Rather, it's by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom by the way you crucified, that this man stands before you whole, and then preaches the, the message of, of salvation to them. And in Acts 14, it says that, it, the, that uh, regarding Paul and Barnabas, that many signs and wonders were done through the hands of these apostles, bearing witness to the message of grace that they were proclaiming. So it needs to bear witness to the right message. At the same time, there are sometimes people who have gifts who don't know what to do with them. The gift of healing is not the same thing as the gift of teaching. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I do I do okay. hate to say this because you're on an Sorry. incredible roll, but I do need to take a little break. We'll be right back yes. with uh, more with Dr. Craig Keener. I'm also joined in studio by Dr. Jim Bilby and Dr. Peter Kafter. We'll be right back. the show. So glad to have Dr. Craig Keener as my guest. He's written a number of books. Uh, I was just learning during the break that his book on Acts is 4,500 pages. <laughs> I don't know if I've read 4,500 pages of anything in my life. <laughs> awfully, awfully interesting. At, 
And I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Kapster and Dr. Jim Bilby. And I prefer if you guys would refer to me as Dr. Bill Arnold today, just so I don't feel like such a loser. <laughs> For sure, Dr. Arnold. Sure, sure, Doc. <laughs> yeah, no problem, Doc. I felt uh, very condescending, just so you know. <laughs> uh, uh, Craig, we left. You were on a roll. I know you've got some more thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, but, but I did. I did uh, the break was very edifying, too. But anyway, um, yeah, we, we see the... We see the the, um, the healings and the deliverances and the stilling of storms and 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 so forth in the Gospels and Acts, especially in the, of course the context that the Gospels and Acts are addressing the breaking breaking ground for the kingdom, and I think that's where we see them not exclusively but most frequently today. So in areas where where the gospel is breaking new ground, we we see them regularly. Um, in in a lot of other contexts, we see them sometimes enough to remind us that God is working, but not not as regularly. Good. So, Craig, uh, I wonder if then you would say, I wonder if this kind of connects with uh, the ongoing debate about what is a gospel, right? So, what are the gospel writers doing when they're introducing us to Jesus? Um, are they you know, telling us about his signs and wonders? Are they telling us about his theology? Are they telling us about his character? How, how would you, how would you, you know, with, you know, kind of with an eye to this question about what scripture is doing when it talks about the miraculous, what, what is, what, what is a gospel? What, what, what is the genre maybe of the gospel, of the gospels? Uh, yeah. To, to, to your question about, um, are they doing this, this, or this? The answer is yes. Yeah. Um, the the but the gospels um, and well, actually, I can give a couple different answers to this. But somebody coming from the outside in the first century, seeing a gospel for the first time, would understand it in the category of a historical work about a person, namely a biography. Um, mm-hmm. And in this period of ancient biography. It was it was kind of the the climax or the apex of the historically reliable character of ancient biography. Uh, well, historically reliable in terms of the way people wrote history in the, in in that period. So, you know, a few hundred years earlier, uh, biographies were mainly more like funeral eulogies. Um, say all the nice things about a person, or if you didn't like them, all the bad things about a person. Um, and a few centuries later, they're like lives of saints that were kind of well, we call them hagiographic, but in the period around the time of the Gospels, this was the apex of when they really tried to be historically reliable, but especially they wanted to reveal the, the character of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, in, theologically, well, in terms of pastoral theology, we might say the Gospels show us God's heart laid bare in Jesus. And so they, they, they show us... Um, what Jesus was like. And so as he's doing these, these signs and wonders, I mean, you've got a, a judgment miracle in a fig tree, and you've got uh, something destructive, although it wasn't a judgment miracle. It was to deliver a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. But uh, you've got in, in Mark 5, 1 through 20, you have um, something that ends up with destruction. But by and large, Jesus' miracles are are all benevolent. They're They're providing safety, uh, like in storms, they're providing healing. Um, they're providing deliverance. Uh, the the first of Moses's 
plagues, of course, was water turned to blood. The first of Jesus' signs was water turned to wine. And, and I think that's a fitting contrast to set the tone for just seeing how they show us God's character and what the kingdom is about. You know, the disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They want to <laughs> they want to set up the kingdom. And so people are saying to the blind beggar Bartimaeus, you know, be quiet. You know, he's he's got more important business. And Jesus stops and says, no, call him. Yeah. Because what the kingdom was really about was caring for people in need. And Craig, I'm wondering, in, in light of that too, you mentioned that these authors really had an emphasis on historical accuracy as part of the biography. And so when you're talking about these miraculous sorts of stories, there is the objection that later authors came in and made up a bunch of stuff about Jesus that he did that he didn't actually do. Can you just expand on that a little bit about the importance that those authors were placing on the historical accuracy of the things that Jesus said and did? Sure. Uh, Now, I always need to give the caveat, depending on how much time there is, that they didn't write history exactly the way we write it today, Mm -hmm. but they had to get the story right in terms of, well, as best as they knew, they had to make sure that they were reporting events that as far as they knew, they really believed these events actually happened. And so that was true in biography of the early Roman Empire. That was true in historiography in the early Roman Empire. Otherwise, they could get really severely peer-reviewed, critiqued uh, by others who, who could challenge their story. The Gospels are not writing legends about people who lived centuries before. Usually the people who who have argued, well, no, these things are legends, like going back to um, a 19th century scholar, David Friedrich Strauss, they, they say, well, these things are myths or legends that developed over generations of time. But even the usual critical dating of the Gospel of Mark, I mean, I date Mark a few years before this, but you know, the usual critical dating of the Gospel of Mark is just 40 years after Jesus' public ministry. By the standards of oral historiography, that is well within living memory, which is often considered like around 80 to 100 years. So, I mean, all the all the first century gospels are by definition as first century gospels written within living memory. So, um, yeah, we, we, would, we would expect them to have accurate resources I mean, at the time Mark is writing, eyewitnesses are still alive of these things. In fact, uh, Quadratus, who was um, a church leader in the early second century, says that some of the people that Jesus raised from the dead were still alive even into his own time. So, wow. you know, maybe like Jairus's daughter or, or the widow of Nahum's son, you know, some of them had, had lived into the late first century. Yeah, Craig, I'm going to need to take a, a break, Dr. Craig. Keener is my guest, and I think we're talking about a little bit of everything, but uh, we do want to keep uh, focused on his book, Miracles, The Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. We're going to be back with more of Dr. Craig Keener uh, in just a minute. I'm also joined in studio with Dr. Jim Bilby and Dr. Peter Kapsner. I brought the big guns in today to help me ask the good questions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Craig Keener is my guest. I'm joined also with Dr. Jim Bilby, Dr. Peter Kapsner. 
And I'm Dr. Bill Arnold just for the next 30 <laughs> minutes, uh, just so I can feel like I'm part of the team here. Um, Craig, uh, I'm just curious, do, does the miraculous still happen? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you asked that question, Doc. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all, all through all through history, we have, we have reports of this. And today, there are so many eyewitnesses of it, including myself, uh, although many others have seen it far, far more than I. And uh, we also have medical documentation in many cases. Um, I'm working on a book now, much shorter book on miracles now uh, that will include medical, uh, will, will include some of the medical documentation. I'm, I, I'm not sure how to uh, do the logistics and in including it in the book. Maybe we'll just have to refer to it. But, um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of cases. Wow. So uh, what when, when people have this skepticism that we, again, is so common, what would be the piece of what would you push them toward? So let's say, you know, I'm talking to somebody who's never personally had an experience of the miraculous. How would you help them open their mind to the possibility? Well, if you have a, a police officer interviewing people at a traffic accident and and interviewing the eyewitnesses and somebody comes up and interrupts and says, no, that's not what happened. I know that's not what happened. And the officer says, well, can you tell me, sir or ma'am, uh, what you saw happen? And the person says, I didn't see anything happen because I wasn't there. But you wouldn't you wouldn't <laughs> take that very seriously as an objection. You know, a lot of times we we pontificate as non-witnesses that something didn't happen. We wouldn't do this ordinary things other than miracles. Um, I mean, it's it's also the same like my, my African-American friends where they've experienced racism and some white people say, ah, that, uh, I've never seen that happen. Well, of course, it didn't happen to them. But right. that's no reason not to believe your friend who's telling you this is what happened to me. And it's it's the same with, with the miracles. Um, there, there are enough of them. There's enough evidence there to say, okay, God sometimes does do these things. Not everything everybody claims to be a miracle necessarily is one. Well, actually, not everything everybody claims to be a miracle is one, but but there are plenty of plenty of such cases. And Craig, I've heard people say something to the effect of that in, in European and maybe uh, just Western European and American society that there doesn't seem to be quite the evidence for miracles that there might be in other parts of the world. Is there, is there anything geographically related to this at all that, that would speak to why it tends, there tends to be more eyewitness accounts in different parts of the world? Um, I don't know geographically, but we, we do have this legacy of Hume so that sometimes even when things do happen, we, we say, huh, did God do that? Or, of course, if you believe God is sovereign, then you're going to recognize that God did it whether you call it a, a special miracle or just God's providence. But uh, in, in many in many places, people, uh, well, like in, in my wife's family, my wife is from Congo in Central Africa. And uh, we, we uh, years ago, she shared a story with me. And, and then when I was in Congo, I had the opportunity to actually interview an eyewitness and, and check out the, the details of the story. And in this case, it was uh, she was locally called Madame Jacques uh, uh, Antoinette uh, Malombe, and her daughter Therese, when Therese was about two years old, 
Antoinette Malambe heard her cry out that, that uh, she was bitten by a snake. She got to her. She found the child not breathing. There was no medical help available in the village, which was why, uh, you know, she couldn't go for medical help. Otherwise, you know, of course she would have. But she strapped the child to her back, ran to a nearby village where a family friend, Coco Ngoma Moise, was doing ministry. And uh, Coco Moise prayed for the child, and the child started breathing again. And the next day she was fine. So I asked Antoinette Malambe, how long was it from the time you found her not breathing to the time that he prayed and she started breathing again? So she had to think how long it took her to get from the one village to the other, and she estimated about three hours. Now, of course, after six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage starts in. But Therese has no brain damage. She's now, she now has a master's degree. Um, I asked, I asked uh, uh, Anta Malambi about this, and it was a kind of a turning point in my own thinking about the subject, because Antoinette Malambe is my, or, or was my mother-in-law, and Therese is my sister-in-law. And so there was something right in my own, in my own family and uh, not to not to mistrust one's mother-in-law, but we did consult uh, Coco Moise as well, who was also the witness, and he he confirmed the the story. But I think in some cultures, like my African friends will say, you know, medical technology is God's gift. Give thanks for that. We don't have enough of that in Africa. We have to depend on miracles, or or we would die. And of course, a lot of people do die. So. Uh, part of it is is desperation. Part of it is um, our Western mindset is sometimes antithetical to faith. Uh, what we've inherited in the legacy from Hume, and part of it may also be the cutting edge of evangelism in in some places where the gospel is is going forth and and confronting powers of darkness in ways that uh, here they've. For a while, they've stayed more hidden, but I guess they're uh, maybe. Uh, I think I think Jim, uh, Jim, you uh, co-authored a, or co-edited a book on this. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, that, that's actually exactly where I was gonna. I was gonna ask if you could elaborate a little bit. Uh, there's such a notion of spiritual warfare here um, that you know I think you can make a pretty good case. Lies be uh, you know the notion of spiritual warfare is woven through the biblical texts. Certainly, the early Christian ha- uh, Christians had this robust notion that there was this very real warfare going on that was spiritual. You know, our battles not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, etc. So, uh, when we're engaging this idea of the miraculous, could you just uh, unpack how that interfaces with this idea of? spiritual warfare and and uh, uh to what degree does our unwillingness or blindness perhaps mm-hmm. to the reality of spiritual warfare uh overlap with our difficulty in understanding god's action through miraculous uh means yeah i mean i think we i think we have kind of a materialistic worldview so that if something isn't material, if we can't measure it in a material way, we don't take it into account. Whereas um, what we see in the Bible, there's a uh, there's also a, a spiritual dimension. And missiologists often speak of something they call power encounters, where you have uh, spiritual forces uh, 
spirit, yeah, spiritual forces that are confronting each other when the gospel goes forth. And so a number of the cases where you have um, nature miracles, this is not exclusive to these cases, but a number of the cases where you have uh, nature miracles, it's actually confronting the, the, the spiritual forces that local people think are in charge of nature, but obviously God has more power than that. So uh, one, of my, one of my friends from Nigeria, uh, he grew up in northern Nigeria. His father was planting churches there, and they had just started in, in one village um, where uh, it, rainy season was starting, and he had just moved there. He needed to get a roof on his uh, the, the home where he was staying. It was going to take four more days to get the roof up. And the local people were mocking him, saying, everything you have is going to be ruined. And and he he responded in anger, which is not a recommended evangelistic method. <laughs> <laughs> he responded in anger, it's not going to rain one drop of rain in this village until I have a roof on my house. And they and they they laughed at him and left. And he fell on his face before God and said, oh, God, what did I just do? But for the next four days until he had a roof on his house, it rained all around the village, but not a single drop of rain fell in the village. And at the end of those four days, there was only one person in that village who had not become a Christian because of what they witnessed. And uh, my my uh, friend, uh, who, 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 by the way, also is a as a professor, um, he he shared that that was the uh, precipitating event for the village becoming a Christian village. Mm. That's stories like that are so powerful. And and Craig, we just we just don't hear these. We don't hear these stories. Yeah, for and sure. yeah. Uh, I'm just you know when when I engage this, I'm just aware of how impoverished oftentimes our perspective of Christianity is. Um, and it's, it's just help really helpful to hear. Um, it may be a broader, maybe a little bit, certainly more global perspective, uh, on these issues. Cause I think Craig too, that so often evangelism in the church that I would have grown up in, I would have been more of a fear based, you know, sort of, I better do something to get myself positioned properly for heaven. But the kind of evangelism you're talking about is sort of this persuasive based evangelism that there is this powerful kingdom that is available that in which one can live and there's a king in that kingdom. And, and so, um, as you referenced, the whole village becomes a uh, Christian because they've witnessed the power of that kingdom, not necessarily because they're so afraid of the afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, afterlife is important, but yeah, they, 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 they already had a worldview, but they're, they're persuaded of a new worldview. And these are cultures where what we call supernatural things do happen, uh, but they realize that the power of God is greater than the power of, that they attribute to the spirits that are uh, around them. In, uh, I think it was a 2006 Pew Forum survey, they, they surveyed Pentecostals and Charismatics in 10 countries. And in those 10 countries alone, the, the estimate, uh, extrapolated estimates of the figures come out to somewhere around 200 million people who claim to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. And those were the Pentecostals and Charismatics. But among the, those who were called other Christians, 
in those countries. It was close to one third of the other Christians. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of people globally who claim to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. Now, in saying that, we're not saying that all of these actually were what we would call miracles, but you can't just arbitrarily a priori dismiss all these claims without exploring them. And and a number of these claims actually come from people who were not Christians before they saw them. So there are millions of people who've become Christians as a result of, um, well, uh, for example, and China was not in the 10 countries surveyed, but in a report from within the China Christian Council, um, which is more affiliated with the Three South Church, uh, around the year 2000, they reported that about half of all conversions to Christianity in the previous 20 years were due to what they called faith healing experiences. Mm-hmm. And the house church movement, uh, or the, the so-called underground church, they they had even higher figures, especially in the rural areas. Uh, I've seen estimates as high as 90%. Now, I don't know a way to quantify those, but we're talking about massive numbers of people who became Christians because of things that they witnessed. Uh, and and you have comparable uh, figures from some other places where there there's groundbreaking evangelism going forth. All right, let me take a little break. Dr. Craig Keener is my guest, and I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Kapsner and Dr. Jim Bilby. We'll take a short break and be right back. I've got Dr. Craig Keener as my guest, Dr. Jim Bilby and Dr. Peter Kapsner have also joined in. And if you go to craigkeener.com, you can learn all kinds of um, information and amazing st- uh, stuff on Craig's life and his writing and his uh, blogs. Uh, not to change subject here a little bit, Craig, I just feel like we've got you, so we want to take full advantage of you. Some of your uh, more recent blogs, uh, going back to May, uh, deals a lot on race relations. You feel quite passionate about that. I'd love for you to share with us. Sure. Yeah, actually, we we had a... Um, some of us made a statement, um, an, an evangelical statement on uh, the gospel as it confronts uh, the sin of racism because, well, I, I'm, I was ordained in an African-American denomination I'm I'm white, uh, and I I there were so many things that the white evangelical churches I'd been a part of had as as gifts from God, and then there were things that the the black church in general had as as gifts from God too. I mean I I came into the black church very brokenhearted, and um, they knew how to deal with pain because they'd had centuries of experience with that. And it really gave me a passion for for wanting to bring together the the gifts that the white evangelical churches have and the uh, the the black church, which by theological definitions is is mostly evangelical, uh, although uh, that terminology isn't as widely used in the black church. But yeah, I, so I got this passion, and I, I already knew some things in the Bible, obviously about just how central the division between Jew and Gentile was in the, in the New Testament. 
uh, and how the transcending of that was was essential. I mean, it's it's big in Romans, it's Galatians, Ephesians, um, it's it's in Matthew's gospel, it's in John's gospel. It's I mean, it's all over the place. Revelation, every kindred and tribe and people and nation. So, Jewish, Samaritan, uh, Gentile, uh, Scythian, uh, in in Colossians three eleven, and God was as he reconciles us to himself, he also reconciles us to one another. When Paul is uh, detained for um, supposedly, this is a false accusation, but supposedly having brought a, a Gentile into the temple in, in Acts chapter 21, and in chapter 22, the crowd quiets as, as he establishes his, his good Jewish credentials, you know, his his years in Jerusalem, his studying with a, a major uh, rabbi there, Gamaliel, uh, and, and they listen to him as he's preaching to them in the local language until he gets to the part where he says, and God told me to go to the Gentiles. Now, they listened to him as long as he was preaching about Jesus, but he wouldn't leave out this part about the Gentiles because you can't really follow Jesus if you're not willing to love those who, when you follow him, will be your brothers and sisters in Jesus. And at that point, I mean, it was just a few years before war was going to break out uh, in, in Judea, and Jews and Syrians were massacring each other in the streets of Caesarea, uh, where, where Paul was soon after this. I mean, when Paul writes in Ephesians that, that Christ has broken down the, the middle wall of the division between Jew and Gentile, probably thinking of the wall of division in the temple beyond which Gentiles weren't allowed to go, and going on to speak of a new temple made of both Jew and Gentile. I mean, when Paul is writing this, he's not writing in a world that was hospitable to ethnic reconciliation. He was writing in a world that actually was very hostile to it. Mm. If God in Christ would summon us to surmount a barrier that he himself once established in history, how much more what he summoned us to surmount every other barrier that's been established merely by human convention or worse yet by human sinfulness. Yeah, I think that's uh, Craig. Thank you. That's just so powerful. Um, I've been, I think it was one of your recent blog posts or little writings. Uh, you talked about how this, this, how the church um, can in, in a certain way that you, you think there's a biblical theme of the church undoing uh, the division that's gone all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Could you could you unpack that a little bit? Um, I don't remember if that was my blog post, uh, but 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 I yeah I can talk about it because <laughs> uh, <laughs> in in Acts chapter two you have kind of a, a re, well some people call it a reversal of Babel, some people call it an analogy of Babel, but you have an allusion to the Tower of Babel where you have a list of nations, just like you have in Genesis 10. And for those who are good with math, of course, the next chapter is Genesis 11, uh, where you have the Tower of Babel. So you have this list of nations, um, which kind of updates the, the geographic areas represented in, in Genesis 10 uh, with, with uh, the language of the first century. And then uh, instead of God coming down to, to scatter and divide the nations as a judgment, Jesus sends the Spirit uh, to cause his people to transcend that. And so 
uh, throughout the book of Acts where you have people worshiping him in, in tongues, uh, like uh, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, uh, it, it really fits the theme of, of Acts 1-8, where uh, the power of the Spirit is to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I think what, what Luke is illustrating there under the inspiration of the Spirit in the book of Acts is that if God, uh, if God was empowering the, the church on the day of Pentecost, and it was expressed in these people worshiping God in other people's languages, how much more can, can we expect God to um, inspire us by his spirit to, to carry his word across all cultural barriers? So I think the allusion to the cultural Babel, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the uh, Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, um, there's an inversion of that so that now, uh, you know, again, there are many languages, many cultures, but the spirit speaks all those languages and, and God, uh, God is building a church that's from every kindred and people and nation and tribe. Craig, we do have about four minutes left or so. I'm just wondering, too, in, in light of that, with the development of the church in the book of Acts, uh, do you see that there is a difference in responsibility for the church in racial relationships versus that of society at large? Because there's, a, there's different values in the church often than what society has. And so can we neatly just expect society to be as racially reconciled as the church uh, obviously has to be? Well, uh, we're supposed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And so we we should be setting the example for them. Um, and, and, of course, we need to work for justice uh, where we can. I mean, in the in the first century, you know, probably even by the end of the first century, the church was probably less than one-tenth of one percent of the population of the Roman Empire. So, you know, you do have passages about doing good to those who are around you, um, especially to those who are the household of faith, but also to others. Uh, you do have... Uh, James denouncing injustice, of course, Jesus denouncing injustice, uh, like like the Old Testament prophets did. But th they were a small minority within the Roman Empire. They didn't have that much influence on society. In our case, we, well, at least in, in, in the United States and some other parts of the world, there are enough of us that we really can influence society and impact society in positive ways but if we're going to speak to society, we'd better make sure that we have our own act together first. Mm. Amen. Really wise. Uh, Craig, I just so appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today. Um, you've got um, your next book uh, coming out when? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I want an answer. <laughs> Uh, but but in terms of a lot of the books are, are really academic, like we mentioned before, but one of them, Impossible Love, that one's pretty readable. Uh, the background commentary is pretty pretty readable. Um, That's a story of you and your wife, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and by the way, um, this is changing the subject a little bit, but going back to a point earlier, while, while we have the time, just wanted to say that one of my colleagues here at Asbury Seminary, a professor of Old Testament, is a Dr. Bill Arnold. So there is a Dr. Bill Arnold. I know. I, I know. <laughs> I feel like he's stealing a lot of my thunder, too. 
Because I'll, I'll reg- regularly get uh, notices that I was mentioned again in some <laughs> academia, but it's not me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time, Craig. Uh, we've loved having you on the show, and I'd love to have you back. And I uh, appreciate uh, you and your work, and I know we're all in a better place because you shared your wisdom with us. Thank you. Oh, you're, you're kind. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Dr. Craig Keener has been my guest. And if you head over to craigkeener.com, K-E-E-N-E-R.com, you can learn more about Craig. That wraps up uh, this hour. Fortunately, Dr. Jim Bilby and Dr. Peter Kapscher, my guests uh, in this hour, are going to stick around for the first part of hour two. So that's all coming up next. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, supporting Faith Radio. Uh, We're again, this is July 1, so this is day one of our new year. But we, uh, we ended with a bang, thanks to your incredible, generous support. So that means the world to us. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.